Never was so much owed by so many to so few. And just as I read that, I was reminded of someone else that said something very, very similar in the Bible. I've been reading through the Gospel of John this week for obvious reasons, because we're going to be talking about a lot about Jesus. Isn't that good? I'm going I'm to start preaching like an American preacher. We're going to talk about a lot about Jesus. Amen. And it's amazing. I know the theme came out, and, and, and the worship team were aware of what I was speaking about, so I can't take credit for the, you know, the, the words of the songs, but Emmanuel God with us and other things. But definitely through the prayers and through the prophecies and the words, there's a very clear pointing towards Jesus. And I was reminded, like I said, of Winston Churchill's words, never was so much owed by so many to so few. This isn't part of my preach, by the way. But this is just something that I was reminded of. In John, which I read, I think probably on an airplane this week. Chapter 11, verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. What had Jesus done? He just raised Lazarus from the dead, right? So here was a guy that was saying, I'm God, and we'll get into that in a minute, and he'd just done something that only God can do. Who's raised anybody from the dead recently? Okay. And the Pharisees recognized that. And so these, these Jews, they come to the chief priests and the Pharisees and to the gathered council and they say, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Isn't it amazing that the chief priests of the time were talking like this? And the Romans will come and take away both our place. Do you see the motivation? They're just concerned about themselves. They're just concerned about their place in society. And the Romans are going to come along, they're going to take our place and our nation. But one of them, I'm going to pronounce it all wrong, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Doesn't that sound familiar to what Winston Churchill was talking about as we remember the people that have sacrificed their lives for our good and well-being, for righteousness and truth? They were talking about Jesus and said, don't you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish? And this is amazing. I'd encourage you to read your Bibles because the Bible is so amazing. It's got so much truth and so much depth. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Isn't that amazing? I think it's amazing. <clears throat> right. We've been going through... Uh, a series called Timeless. Everybody enjoying the Timeless series? So we've decided to take a break from that, and we're going to go back in the new year to look at the Timeless series. But my my view on the Timeless series is, is, the way I explain it, is what is God's grand design for us as people within the family of God? How did God make us? 
How in the beginning God created mankind in his image. I always have to talk Genesis 1 in every time, I, every sermon I, I speak of. But God created mankind in his, his image and how we are to relate to God and how we are to relate to each other. It's timeless, right? It does not change depending on the culture or popular thinking. It's God's timeless wisdom and design. And I think we've had some really excellent teachings, and we will continue to look at that in the new year. But I'm going to steal a word that, 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 that Philippov uses. We're not going to pivot. We're going to pivot a little bit, and we're going to look at Jesus. Now, of course, even as we look at timeless, what we're looking at is Jesus. We're looking, you know, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation. What's the last verse in Revelation? 22-21. It's the story about Jesus. It's the narrative of Jesus. It's the story of God. And, but we're taking a break from this series, and as I said, resuming the new year, and we're going to focus on Jesus, and particularly what Jesus had to say about himself. It's rooted in the Gospel of John. So if you've heard me speak a few times, you know I quote a lot of scripture. I kind of don't apologize for that, but I do. So stay with me. Keep up. They're going to all be on the screen so you can read them so you don't have to be flipping uh, to your Bible or if you're sort of under 35 with your phone. And after the series, it's just a series of three, we're then going to lead, I think, into the Advent series as we lead up and celebrate Christmas. And then in the new year, we go back to timeless. So over the next three weeks, we will be investigating a number of the I am statements. You've heard of the I am statements. Anybody, apart from the one I'm talking about today, think of an I am statement? I am the way. I'm going to be talking about that today. Any other I am statements? Bread of life. Yeah, that's a good one. Light to the world. Good shepherd. Oh, that's one of the better ones, yeah. <laughs> the more esoteric ones, not the obvious ones. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you later. <laughs> but we're going to go through the I am statements, which are clear affirmations of Jesus' deity. John is all about revealing that Jesus is God. It's clear claims that Jesus was saying he was and he is God. There's a, 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 just a, a little quote I'd like to say from uh, Michael Harrell as I was uh, sort of researching this. And I thought this was great. It says, some think Jesus never claimed to be God. That perhaps this was an inv inv sorry, invention by early Christians or misreading Paul. John's gospel has seven distinct moments where Jesus claims to be something that no human could possibly be. With language that no devout Jew would possibly use for fear of committing blasphemy. In these statements, we hear the truth of Jesus' identity. There are seven specific I am statements, but many different times where Jesus uses the term or the words I am, and we'll look at a couple of them this morning. But if we can go to those seven statements, these are the seven I am statements of Jesus recorded by John. I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. I am the light of the world, John chapter 8. I am the door, John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, John chapter 10 as well. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. And I am the vine, 
John 15. In the quote from uh, Michael Harrell, he states that Jesus uses language that no devout Jew would, hear, would use for fear of committing blasphemy. What is he referring to? Why does he say that? We need to understand the cultural and the biblical context of these words. The name I am is one of the names that God gives to himself and is first seen in Exodus 3 when Moses encounters God at the burning bush. So Exodus 3 verses 13 to 14 says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Good question. What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am, I am has sent me to you. A name reflects who a person is. A name reflects what a person is. And God said, when Moses said, God, what's your name? How do I say the God of your forefathers has sent me? And they say, well, what's his name? God chooses the words, I am. Just I am. And you can, if you meditate on those words, I am, it, it's kind of like I've always been. I, I am. I, there, there's nothing beyond me. There's nothing before me. There's nothing after me. There's, there's nothing it's simply I am. God's an amazing God. That just in those two simple words, I am, he reveals himself to Moses and he reveals himself to the people of Israel and he reveals himself to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and it goes on and on. I am who I am. The Jews knew that the words I am were the name of God. They were the name that God himself had attributed to himself. The transliteration of this name in English is Y-H-W-H. Try saying that. Okay. We kind of use the word because we put a couple of vowels in there and we, we call it Yahweh. I'm sure you've heard of, of, of Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. And to the Jews, this name was so holy that they would not speak it. They would not speak the name of God. So what they did is they substituted that name with the word Adonai, which in English means Lord. So when you read in your Bible often where it says Lord, <coughs> especially in the Old Testament, it's referring to the name of God, Yahweh, as we would pronounce it ourselves. So when Jesus started using the term I am, the Jews were fully aware, right? They were fully aware of the context and the implication of using that term. Jesus was using it to claim he had the attributes that could only be bestowed on God and that he himself was and is God. Another quote from B. Nathaniel Sullivan. Did Jesus claim to be God? Any fair reading of the scripture will lead an honest inquirer to one conclusion and one conclusion only. Yes, Jesus absolutely did claim to be God and both his allies and his enemies 
understood it. I would encourage you to read the Gospel of John for yourself. It's often recommended that new Christians read the Gospel of John. I'm sure you've heard that. I've told new Christians, read the Gospel of John as they start their new life in Christ. Why is this? Well, amongst other things, because as I mentioned earlier, it reveals the divinity of Jesus. It actually reveals who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is, in fact, God. And John, as it were, pulls back the curtain on Jesus' earthly life to reveal the divine Jesus, the God Jesus. And you know what? If you read the Gospel of John, like I said, please read it. It's a great book. John sets out a store right at the beginning of the Gospel. In John chapter 1, clearly stating that Jesus is the Word and that he is God and that he reveals that in Jesus, as uh, um, John mentioned earlier as he was praying, praying, God became man and dwelt among us. John 1 verses 1 to 2 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was, he was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14 of the same chapter says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We must not forget that Jesus was born a man. He was a baby born in Bethlehem to a teenage mother in a fairly inconsequential family, although they did have lineage to King David, right? But he was born a man, he was a carpenter, and only at the age of 30 or thereabouts did Jesus start his ministry and began to reveal who he really was. Again, John picks up the thread right at the beginning of the gospel in verses 9 and 10 of John 1. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus came as a 30-year-old, and if you read the gospel of John, and he's baptized by John the Baptist, and he received the Holy Spirit, and you can, you can read the story. In a period of three years, Jesus accomplished more than we could ever do in three millennials, or forever. And one of the things he did do during that three-year period was to reveal himself as who he was, that he absolutely was God. John 1 Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made it known. And then from chapter 2, John records the life, the words, and the works of Jesus. As he, Jesus, makes known God through himself. Initially, he spoke in sayings, analogies, and stories. And from time to time, he would clearly decay declare himself to be the Christ, God's son, and therefore on par with God, and in other words, declaring himself to be God. And one of the ways that he did that, as we have already stated, was taking upon himself the name of God, Yahweh, I am that I am for himself. And as Nathaniel Sullivan said, both his allies and his enemies would have fully understood it. 
Now, there are several occasions uh, of this in John, but the one that stands out for me is in John chapter 8. And the entire chapter, if you read the chapter, and I'd encourage you again to do that, it is a discourse between Jesus and the Pharisees and Jesus and the Jews about this very question. It's who do you say you are? Or the Pharisees would say to him, who do you think you are? What was Jesus saying about himself? What did they say about Jesus? They accused him about bearing witness to himself, saying, you know, how can you bear witness to yourself? Other people should bear witness uh, to you. To which Jesus replied, well, my works bear witness to me. But they tended to ignore that. They, They accused him of being a Samaritan and of having a demon. They even called him the son of the devil. (laughs) Isn't that ironic? They are calling the son of God the son of the devil. They themselves claim to be children of Abraham and therefore children of God, to which Jesus replied in John 8, 56 to 59, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham, I am. Man alive, that was like throwing a grenade into that place. Before the Jews and the Pharisees, he said, Before Abraham, I am. What was he saying? I'm God. So what did they do? They do what every good Jewish person would do. They picked up stones and they prepared to throw them at him, to stone him. But Jesus, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They knew exactly what he was saying. This was blasphemy. How can a man, the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth, the carpenter that we know, We know his brothers and sisters. How can that man claim to be God? Think about it. How would you have reacted? You know, sometimes we can stand there and we think, oh, yeah, those Pharisees, those Jews. Think about it yourself. You know, just imagine I came and said, hey, I'm God. Granted, I haven't done the works that Jesus has done. But it's quite a statement to make. And so the Jews, yep, They picked up stones to throw them at him, but Jesus hid himself, and he went away. They knew what he was saying, that he was God, and that was blasphemy for a mere man to say that, and the punishment of stoning. However, if he was in fact the Son of God, God who who became flesh stating this, then clearly it's the truth. And so the I am statement that we're going to be looking at very briefly this morning, and by the way, that was my introduction again, but it was about half my sermon, so don't worry. Okay. Um, it's found in John chapter 14, where Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 1 to 7 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Or another, transla- or another way of translating that is, You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. So from now on, you do know him and have seen him. I love Jesus for giving a three-point sermon. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. With a conclusion, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is an interesting statement to make. Clearly, Jesus was saying that he was the way to God. And you know what? Jesus was being both totally inclusive and totally exclusive when he said that. Now, we know inclusiveness is now a morally very good word, and exclusiveness is sin. Okay. But Jesus was both inclusive and exclusive. And what do I mean by that? I love John 3:16 and 17. I really do. It's the epitome of the gospel. I wish I was Billy Graham and could stand up here and talk for an hour just on John 3:16. I don't know if you've heard any of his sermons on John 3:16, but they're worth listening to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What a declaration. You should be whooping. You should be jumping up from your seats and clapping, right? This is better than South Africa winning the Rugby World Cup, although I was was kind of supporting England. But then I supported South Africa and they won. Um, This is better than the FA Cup final, the World Cup, whatever it is, whatever it is, the sewing bee or whatever really gets gets you going. Okay? This is the inclusion of Jesus Christ. It's the declaration of hope and salvation. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever. Total inclusion. Whoever, anyone, no one is precluded or excluded from this promise. This promise is for everyone, for the entire world. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Amen? However, it doesn't stop there. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus still speaking, says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And don't we see this? The total inclusiveness of Jesus Christ saying, I died for you all. I did it. It's for whoever, whoever can come to me and get forgiveness of sins, can come through me to God and to eternal life. But people rejected him. Why was that? And people still reject him. Why was that? 
because they love the darkness more than they love the light. That's the truth. Those are the words of Jesus. They're not my words. Don't stone me. Okay? I'm the messenger. They love darkness more than the light. Where did that meek and mild Jesus go in verses 18 and 19? Salvation is everyone. The love of God compelled him to send his son as an atonement, his son as an atonement for our sins. God loves us, everyone, so much he sacrificed his only son. Right? Jason's just got a new, brand new son. Right? And I'm sure he's taken over your life. But just imagine taking that son and sacrificing him for me. And you know how bad I am. Right? It's true. The wonderful inclusiveness of God, the love of God, that he would do that. He loved us so much he sacrificed. But there is a condition. You have to go through the way. You have to go through the way. Jesus did not say, I am a way. He said, I am the way. He was very clear and specific. You have got to go through the gate, which is another one of the I am's, I am the gate. There is only one way, there is only one truth that leads to God who is eternal life, and that way is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> if Jesus is the way, then by definition, other ways are counterfeit. No? <coughs> let's be honest with ourselves. You know, The Bible doesn't say remove your mind, it says renew your mind. So let's do a little bit of thinking together. Right? If Jesus is the way, other ways are counterfeit. Yeah? Yes. Amen. They do not lead to life. I just want to consider two such ways that are prevalent, especially here, right now, in our post-Christian Western civilization society. One is what I call, I did it my way. You know the song, I did it my way. Right? That's that sort of atheistic, humanistic view of life. I'm just going to do it my way. And the other one, which I think is slightly even more challenging, especially in the church, is that, you know, all roads lead to God. You know, eventually all roads lead to God. That's called pluralism or universalism. We'll talk a little bit about that. What is atheism to start with? Atheism is just disbelief in God. Another way of saying it is ungodly. It's people that are ungodly. They just don't believe in God. Atheists are people that don't believe in God. And then you have agnostics, which are kind of just really atheists as well, is their belief is that nothing is known or can be known about God or gods. And so generally, uh, atheists actively disbelieve in God, and agnostics just ignore God. Right? What about humanism? Humanism is an approach to life based on reason and common humanity, recognizing that moral values are properly founded on human nature and experience alone. That sounds quite credible, doesn't it? That's reasonably credible. I'm not going to unpack that too much this morning, but what happens when your experience is different to mine? Whose truth is more true? Whose way is the better way? It just gets confusing, and it changes. And that's why we're doing the Timeless series, because, you know, 
the world will change, but God's word and God never changes. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I think it's fair to say that, that most people in Britain today either don't believe in God, are atheists, or are unsure and go about their lives with no consideration to God, like humanists. The concept of a God who is Lord is either one to be actively railed against, just pushed back on, or simply just to ignore. In each case, the way to life is to do it your way. What is right and wrong are subjective, and sin is a dirty word. Right? Sin becomes a dirty word. Ultimately, self is God. You're God, frankly. So you do it your way. What is the fruit of this lifestyle? Even one that on the face of it appears quite moral and good. The end is absolutely the opposite to life. It is death. It's hopeless. There's no hope without God. Just look at society around you right now. People are pursuing fulfillment uh, or life and power and things and money, status, love, sex. But none of it ultimately satisfied, satisfies. None of it truly leads to life and life in its abundance. And isn't that true? You just need to open the BBC app on your iPhone, read a newspaper, watch the television. You know, there's so much out there, but there's no hope. There's no life. I often say to Liz, I say it often, is I just don't know how non-Christians survive <coughs> because what is your hope in this world? Where is your hope? In the words of Jesus, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's it. That's just doing it your way, ignoring God. But you know what? At least atheism and humanism are quite black and white and easy to identify. However, there's a more incestuous and subtle error that I think that is creeping into society and into the church, and that's pluralism and universalism. Let me just give you the definitions of the two. Pluralism is belief in two or more religion, sorry, belief in two or more religious worldviews as being equally valid and acceptable. It gives credence to competing truth claims, accepting diverse beliefs of God and truth. And then universalism is a theology focused on a doctrine of universal reconciliation that all people will be saved and restored to God. There's growing pressure on the church to be inclusive. Isn't that true? Huge pressure. It is under pressure to compromise, to accept all beliefs, to accept all lifestyles. Discrimination is the new immorality. I can lose my job for discriminating. I can probably sleep with whoever I want and do drugs and everything else, and I probably won't lose my job. But if I discriminate, I can lose my job. Love is undiscerning. It accepts all. That's what love is, isn't it? Doesn't love accept all? Is it undiscerning? The answer is no. Jesus is both 
totally inclusive, but also totally exclusive, because he said he was the way. And we'll see just now, he says, he is the truth. Teaching of people considered even to be evangelical Christians, and I hate to do this, but I'm going to say it out there, people like Steve Chalk, Rob Bell, be careful of their doctrine. They're blurring the lines. They're universalists, right? They're kind of questioning, is Jesus really the way? He's kind of a way, but he's not the way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. They are saying that God is a loving father and will not condemn people to eternity in hell. They, that ultimately we are all accepted by God and the natural consequence of that is that we can live how we like because we have this God safety net. These are clever and persuasive people, but it's error. It's wrong. Jesus is both inclusive and exclusive. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So point number two, the truth. So Jesus is the way. And did you know that the church used to be called the way? Did you know that? It's quite interesting. Just a little free throwaway fact. You recognize error by holding it up against the truth, right? How do you recognize a counterfeit pound, uh, 10 pound note? By comparing it with the real thing. Jesus said he is the truth. Here's the plumb line against which we hold up all philosophies, all teachings, and deeds. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the one, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word of God, and the Word of God is truth. Jesus, God's Word, and truth are synonymous. That's why you need to be carrying this around with you. That's why you need to be reading the Word of God. Because if you're not reading the Word of God, how do you know what truth is? How do you know Jesus? Except Jesus is the Word of God. He is the way, the truth. He became, the Word became flesh. Read 1 John chapter 1 as well in conjunction with John chapter 1. They're both kind of like a couple, two facets of the same diamond, of the same truth. It's talking about Jesus coming into the world as the light, shining light, being totally inclusive and saying everybody that wants to can come. But not everybody does because people love the darkness more than the light sometimes. We do not live in darkness. God has shone his light on the way. And that light is the truth of his word. That is why the Bible is so important. We need to read it. We need to meditate on the truth of it. And we need to walk in the light of it. No matter how difficult, or dare I say it, counter-cultural. I just want to read, not from 1 John, but from Matthew 7.13, which is very sort of similar. This is Jesus uh, talking at the... Um, Sermon on the Mount, John 7 from verse 13, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild. Totally inclusive. He died for everybody, but he knew that people loved the darkness, sometimes more than the light. And the way to enter, sometimes that gate seems narrow, and sometimes the way seems hard, but Jesus is still encouraging us. Enter through the gate. Walk along the way. The path is narrow, and sometimes it's difficult. Why? Jesus promised his disciples. He said, people are going to hate you because of me. The world's going to hate you because of me. They're going to throw you out of the synagogues. They're going to stone you. They're going to cut you in two. They're going to crucify you. They're going to persecute you. And we see that. We see that around the world, and we're seeing that more and more, even here in, in, in Western society. People no longer want to hear the truth about Jesus. And we're going to see, I promise you, folk, you, you, you can see it already, that there is more and more pressure on the church. And we're either going to conform, yeah? We're either going to conform, or we're going to walk along that road that's slightly more difficult, and through that gate that's slightly more narrow. But you know what? It's the gate to life. It is the truth, and it leads to light. John 8, 31, 32 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You don't need a black leather bound Bible like this, although I really like this. But if you abide in this, what does abide mean? Take time. Live in it. Consider it. Pray about it. Think about it. Read it. Meditate on it. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There is a freedom in abiding in the word of God and knowing and obeying the truth. It may be hard sometimes, it may be narrow, it may go against the flow, but it will bring life. Likewise, if we ignore and suppress the truth, we invite God's judgment upon us. Romans 1, 18 to 19 talks about this, says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because he has shown it to them. God has given us his word to reveal to us his truth. He sent his son Jesus to come to earth as a man to show mankind the way to God. And Jesus was also the embodiment of that truth. He lived the perfect life and his words were and are the words of life. Even through God's creation, God says he has revealed his truth. So Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. Third one, I'm the life. This is the prize, folks. This is what it's all about. The end state. We like to say that at work. So what's the end state? Jesus has proclaimed he is the way, the only way, and it is the way of truth 
And that way results in eternal life, which can only be found in God. You remember the context of the scripture in John 14, the way, the truth, and life scripture. Jesus said these words after the Last Supper with his disciples, but before his crucifixion. He had said during the supper that one of them would betray him and that Peter would deny him. Jesus knew the time had come to make the ultimate sacrifice and to pay the price for all our sins. And within this narrative, Jesus was able to comfort his disciples. They should have been comforting him. Okay. But he was able to comfort his disciples and he told them to not let their hearts be troubled as he was going to prepare a place for them to be with the Father forever. This was the life Jesus was referring to, eternal life. Life in God's presence as it is always meant to be. And I love this. We've got to go back to Genesis 1, as was evidenced in the Garden of Eden. From there in John 17, after Jesus had prayed his high priestly prayer, he went to another garden. This time it wasn't the Garden of Eden. It was the Garden of Gethsemane. It was in that garden where Jesus agonized in prayer for the whole of mankind because he loves us so much and determined to drink the cup that he had been assigned and that only he could drink. What was that cup? The cup of God's wrath and judgment for all our sins. And we pick up the story in John 18. I've been flying in a lot of airplanes recently, so we're coming down to land. Verses 1 to 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, the garden of Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Have you ever read that before and really understood what that was saying? He said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I'm God. They couldn't stand in his presence. They fell down. They had the soldiers. They had the clubs. They had the lanterns. They had their weapons. Jesus wasn't taken Jesus gave up himself. He was God for goodness sake. This was God saying, I am God. And I give up my life. What did Winston Churchill say? Never so it was so much owed by so many to so few. In this case, the one.
Jesus revealed his divinity when he said, I am. The soldiers weren't able to stand in his presence. It was a message from Jesus that I am who I am is here. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was not overpowered by soldiers, but was giving of himself willingly to ultimately give us eternal life. Can we have the band come up? So what is our response? What's our response to this Jesus? What's our response to this God? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do we recognize that he is the way? Do we recognize that his word is the truth and that life is only found in him? Or are we going to do it our way? Are we going to walk in our ways? Are we going to suppress his truth and make our truth relative to how we feel? We see in the final chapters of John that Jesus made the way by dying on the cross and taking our sins and judgment upon himself. What are you going to do with Jesus' statement that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through me.